You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Hello and welcome to Future Friday. It is I, your host, Tom May. As always, if you want to reach out to me, please email me, tom at futurefriday.net. I'll get back to you. Today, I am joined by the legendary Scott Bell. Scott has been the tour manager of the Menzingers for over a decade. He has charged headfirst into every hailstorm. He has shepherded us and held our hands up every valley and down every peak on this incredible journey. When he is not liberating brats on the Eastern Front or waging rider war on the West, he is a fierce history buff, a relentless and inspiring political organizer, and a scene maker in Michigan, curating shows and festivals and providing a platform for artists and punters alike as a promoter. He is one of my best friends in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, the first of many recorded conversations with Scott Bell. I'm just going to start getting this recording. Oh, yeah. There you yeah. go. Scott, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I already did an intro. Well, I'm going to do an intro, and you will have already heard it, but this is Scott Bell, our tour manager. Hey. I, uh, uh, I, I would call you a political agent. I would say a promoter extraordinaire and all well, all around beautiful and interesting human being. I was hoping that we could start off with one of my favorite parts about you or mm-hmm. one of the, the Scott trivia facets. Tell us about your first couple jobs. Okay, so my first job um, that I was ever paid for was I was a mascot at a local grocery store, um, like, like cereal mascots. Um, uh, like I've been Count Chocula. I've been every cereal character in a blow-up <laughs> costume. I've been Captain Crunch. I've been Count Chocula. Uh, um, it, uh, uh, Kool-Aid Man, right? Uh, Chester Cheeto. Um, I've been a Twinkie. All of them. And it was great. I mean, you sweat a lot and you scare kids. And I want to think it was my friend's, uh, my friend Zach's mom was the deli director and she got us the job and she was like, we'll pay you guys like $8 an hour. And we were like, my God, yeah. we, are, we don't have to work the rest of the summer if we just walk around the zoo during the free zoo day and <laughs> scare kids. And, you know, I mean, some kids like you and that's pretty heartwarming, you know, but you just kind of, you dance and stuff. Um, and then after that, um, I got a job working at Flying J Truck Stop had just opened. I was the the buffet kid. I like my job was to guard the meat and like slice the meat as th- thin for the corporate overlords, but like yes. thick for like the Teamster truckers. You know, it was yeah. constant. And I also had to like squeeze the rolls. And if they were like old, I had to throw them away. And that was the test. <laughs> They're like. What squeeze a wildly it. like pseudo sexual activity for a right? teenager. You have to squeeze the rules. <laughs> squeeze the rolls. Uh, right? That's funny. Do you? Th- I wonder if this battle between um, the thickness of the meat slicing is a, a an allegory or at least a preparation for your later um, career aspirations in in politics. Maybe not necessarily career aspirations, but just activism aspirations. Passion, provocateur. Uh, to, 
Yeah, you're trying to consolidate and, uh, 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 or at least uh, reconcile the corporate need or whatever <laughs> the higher need with the Teamsters need. You got you can't get fired. Yeah, you know? that was the first. Um, it was also the first job where I. Well, that was where I first came into contact with like conspiracy theory, Illuminati stuff. This was two thousand five, yeah. two thousand four. Right this, at the uh, kickoff of that. Show. Oh yeah, well, and this this yeah. Tr- this trucker handed me. He was like, he handed me this VHS tape, and he was like. Let's watch this when you have some free time. And it was like the most overdubbed, grainy video about the Illuminati and the New World Order. And then all this like weird Jewish stuff. And that was when I was I kind of realized like (laughs) these this guy's crazy. He's like he's a regular at a truck stop. Yeah. (laughs) And yeah, that's you know, there's so much there. I, as you know, and many people know, I've been into uh, conspiracy theory culture for a very long time. Uh, both for what I find immensely entertaining and also for some things that I, I think that need to be very seriously re-looked at. But I've been exposed to all of those things in the deepest, darkest places you can imagine. Mm. 2020 was a very, very, very bad year because it went mainstream. So you have all these fucking middle-aged people from Facebook piling into uh, uh, places that were once fun refuge for doing mm. like alternative research. And now you have these people like selling crystals and acting like psychopaths and then storming the capital because they took literally something that is completely baseless we could dive into that but it's so funny to think that that's that's rap flying j culture wrapped up we spent so much time on tour living yeah. at t- truck stops coming in and out of these places and they are islands of like a bizarre travel culture you, you watch lord of the rings or you picture western uh movies back in the day or old pirate stuff or even like silk road shit you'd feel like you'd be staying at an inn and meeting all the travelers there, but no, the American version is a flying J, where you it, have it a is right. I mean, yeah, you're 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 excited. You're excited that there's like bananas. Yeah, that like exactly. that that like that the 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 trader before you brought fresh fruits from the you know from South America, and you're like, yep. wow, I don't have to eat the roller hot dog right now, the, you know? Yeah, which was the early part. You first eat the roller hot dog, and then learn that it's that's very bad. Idea. It's it's it's. I remember being like, it's better to be hungry right <laughs> now true. than like, than like, I, like just just get the corn nuts and keep it moving than try to make whatever's happening here a meal. Hell yeah. So um, not going to get into where we met just yet, but you played in a band called the Cartridge Family. Yeah. Great name. This is how we met you guys that way. We met you that way. Yep. Uh, but I wonder if there isn't a direct connection between the antics of the serial monster cosplay into cartridge family theatrics. Yeah. So if anybody lives in Philly, this is like the bad luck 13 of Lansing. Uh, this is like a, the, there's some tree four elements here. If you're from the Southeast, it, it was a very like, it was a very punk rock band in, in all of the senses. Too much, uh, too much Wu-Tang clan worship and too much like gorilla biscuits uh, etiquette. And too much um, Murder City Devils influence. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, uh, me and a, a group. It, the band was a real band. Um, infamous uh, concert poster artist Craig Horky started it. Played guitar and also breathed uh, breathed fire in the band. Um, and uh, my group of friends post high school kind of jo- joined them. We all moved into everyone's. Uh, they were the renters. Uh, all right, they they lived in houses and we lived in the basements. And of these punk houses, 
and we joined the band and we just, yeah, I was uh, the second lead singer. And eventually, you know, we had like, we'll just put another guitar on stage. And then it was like, put another drummer on stage, you know, oh, here, you want this floor town? Oh, here, let's. And then we started to branch out into themed shows. And it's very, um, you know, we had a member who ran, uh, who ran for mayor one year out of boredom. So we got, <laughs> but we got on the ballot. So we were, we were allowed to be in the 4th of July parade. So we got a, a, a trailer, a flatbed trailer, and we played yeah. on it. Everyone, you know, you dress up, you wear as much spandex as possible, you know, different and, and the different costumes. Um, so, yeah, we our, our paths collided on the when we were touring on our way down to Fest at a punk house in Savannah, Georgia, where no one was wearing shoes and they were feeding a spider on the front porch that became very large. We played with, I believe, y- you guys and Slingshot Dakota, Slingshot Dakota. That was it. And um, we that was the, a night where Greg and I slept on the floor where they put a bucket over dog shit. And I'm also convinced that the house or the people in the house were haunted because I had sleep paralysis for one of only two times in my life. And there were definitely demons clawing at me in my sleep. But yes, we met at that house. It was a super weird, super weird experience. And you guys then rented a flatbed trailer and drove around Fest in Gainesville, Florida, just playing on it. And I remember uh, someone fell off and got a concussion. Was it crazy? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, my buddy, my, my friend Zach, actually, who got in the... Um or maybe it was Craig. A lot of concussions in this pit. That yeah. you know, we, we, we weren't right wing, we weren't left wing. We were fight for your right wing. Um, <laughs> was the mantra, you know? Um, There's so many facets. So you guys are a bunch of basement punk house dwelling uh, people who mm-hmm. just started a band. Put as many people as you can. But you also had an ambition and an organization, like a, an organizational drive to be able to pull off some of the things. You're talking about renting. You talk about somebody running for mayor. You're talking about writing uh, moon bounce houses and bringing them to shows. Yep. There's stories of, uh, you know, we rented a flatbed trailer. There's so many facets of this. What about the Chinese Buffet Liberation Army, where if you oh, yeah. consume enough, it drives down the cost of the all-you-can-eat down to zero or below, where it starts to cost them? Yeah. Uh, the B- <laughs> all of these things are just the BLC, fucking amazing. Yeah. The BLC, the Buffet Liberation Corps. Um, that's a that was a big, you know, because like theoretically, you know, yeah, you, you eventually you can cost them money, and we you roll in with fifteen uh, uh, immature twenty-something guys and gals. You know, ever you know, if you had a significant other, they were immediately in the band. I mean, the first thing they told me was like, <laughs> if you come on this tour with us, you're going to lose your job, and you're going to lose, and your girlfriend's going to break up with you. And those both of those things happened like a weekend, like mostly because I forgot to call off my dishwashing job yeah, that'll happen. At, at flying J. I was like, had to move to back and forth to the dish tank. And they're like, what do you mean you're in Pittsburgh? And I was like, punk rock. We got to do this show. And I was also an idiot. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we, we, we ran a record label, you know, uh, you know, the, the book, our band could be your life, you know, about the early eighties DIY scene, um, was, was the Bible. You know, and yeah, just totally. Let's put out our own records. Let's book our own shows. Let's book our own tours. Let's host. And you know, fest. Like we, you talk about fest in Gainesville was a huge part of that. Like cohesion of you know how I met you guys and like yeah, it was like I always described it as what it was like a punk rock conference to an extent because it was everybody coming down and mostly just hanging out. Everyone who went was in a band, whether they were in a band at home or not. You know, so it kind of uh, became a place to network and and figure out how to do more touring. Yeah. Awesome. And it was like, hey, well, like I have this, you know, I have this dive bar and these like house venues that we can you can come play up in Lansing, Michigan. You know, ever heard of it? Let's let's have a show. Yeah. Um, 
And so that was exactly what you did for us. Then we ended up in Lansing. This is probably, I'm just going to say it's 2009. Uh, this is my guess. Yeah. So we, we come up and play in Lansing. Yeah, you set up the show at Max Bar. The show gets canceled. I forget exactly why, but then you moved us to your living room where we built a mic stand by out of a, I think we used a road cone and a broom handle. Mm-hmm. And we took a 20-ounce bottle of soda, cut the bottom off, and stuck the microphone in that. And then Greg and I shared that mic while we played in your guys' uh, living room while Craig was living in the basement. And it was an incredible time. Never forgot it. We actually, funnily, hilariously enough, Greg was friends with someone who was a... a on the you know the AAA sports team, it was either I think it was gymnastics. Maybe? Yeah, it was Michigan State gymnastics. Yeah. Michigan State gymnastics. So we ended up over there at a dorm room party with all of the Michigan State gymnast team and their like you know athletic boyfriends, and that was there was just a hilarious experience all around. But you you know we became very close friends, and then mm-hmm. you started a tour with us after that. But to rewind it before that. Um, you're doing this stuff with the Cartridge family. You start to book a lot of shows that are, you know, like we read this book, This Bank Can Be Your Life. You start to realize that you can just take things into your own control and there's not really rules for anything. The stereotypical notion that some guy with a cigar is visiting his daughter at college and goes to an open mic and sees the guy playing, it just doesn't really happen. No. Uh, everybody has to make their own their own way and you guys literally made your own way in a hilarious way. So now this rolls out into you becoming – um, you know, very serious promoter and now grown to be, I mean, I would imagine the largest or one of the largest promoters in <clears throat> your region of Michigan, um, which rolls down into Detroit. So did you think you learned a lot from the Cartridge Family DIY joke exper- experiences into turning it into a real, a real career? Oh, totally. I mean, you go from being kicked out of venues and like the owner threatening to like, you, know, you have to pay for the light you damaged and then you just you just kind of balk at that until he says, "Well, you got to throw my staff a pizza party," and you're like, "Well," th- and then you learn that like the owner of this business that you think is a millionaire is like actually like has no idea what they're doing either. So like, oh, if we just con him into giving us five to nine p.m. all ages, like we know, like I know the gaslight anthem. I know a hundred people will show up to the gaslight anthem. I know a hundred people will come to see the Red Scare tour with like the Menzingers and Cobra Skulls, like. And we're the only ones who think that. So let's do that. And then, oh my gosh, there's like, there's money left over. Cool. Now we can like press the next, you know, we can, we can put out the cheap girls record or we can put out, you know, any number of local things and just kind of keep that rolling. And then before you know it, you have like kind of have this like scene and you've learned to like, you know, how to, how to promote a show. And then you're like, wow, that's actually a job, you know, this, and then building, I'm big into like, like the the movement being sustainable you know like const- yeah. especially in a college town where like things turn over every two three four years as kids move on you know yeah it's interesting you say that uh and i think that's one thing that may people may find surprising who aren't in quote unquote the know of the situation and that is that oftentimes when we were coming up especially the places that we would be the most popular at and do the most well at were centralized around either a local one local band or a couple of individuals that created a scene in a perfect storm at a place like you're mentioning. You, you went to the, the bar, you mm-hmm. say, I have, you know, 
give me four hours all ages at this time and I know these bands that will come here and this many people will come see them. And all it takes is those small individual actions that created those scenes for us when we were coming through. We grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and there was a place called, uh, you know, we tried to do that somewhat in Scranton. We had a couple of venues. I went and started, I talked to an owner of a skate park into letting us book shows there. And then that became, next thing you know, there was 500 people at the shows and then it got robbed and everything came crashing down and skinheads and clicks <laughs> and hardcore gangs were beating shit out of each other and it all had to end. But uh, that's what we did. And in Wilkesbury, there was one place, that a Cafe Metropolis and home base that were just scenes that they, they it, that whole if you build it, they will come thing from fucking Field of Dreams became a reality. And there are many places around the country that ended up being like that for us. Uh, you know, everywhere from uh, Normal, Illinois at the Firehouse with Zach to... Um, you know, place it to to places in upstate New York, like the Bug Jar. It just really kind of manifested itself, and it's 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 super interesting how that works. And I think that there's a switch in, in a lot of our minds that realize that you can come to the realization that no, I am in control of these situations. Yeah, especially as a kid, like oh, like are you are you have something to give? You know, I constantly yeah. tell younger bands and artists and like rappers and DJs like this is how much you it's whatever you make of it, man. Like whoever's gonna and so, partly it's like it's either like tempering expectations or like, yeah. or trying to get, ga- or, or trying to like gas people up. It's like, so often like young bands are like, Oh, like no one's going to come see us. And you know, I'm like, well, you got 20 friends. Let's find three other bands that have 20 friends. Now you have a show. And if you actually like hang out and like, that's a scene, that's a simple, you know, especially in, a, in like a smaller town like this, you know? Yeah. Just in general. And, and like, and be fair, like my operate, like what we do is like super small fish compared to like, large concerts but like that's it's as easy it's as simple as that you don't you never know what's going to come out of that yeah and and kind of reframing essentially what it is is kind of helps and that is that it's a party like if you when we were starting our friends would come see us we actually talked recently a lot about how a lot of the first places that we went to became popular uh, besides being you know the largest cities in the country and cultural hubs of the world you know like new york and chicago and Mm. shit like that was because groups of people from Scranton that we knew lived there, and they'd be like, hey, I moved to this town. I'm from Scranton. I have, like, 15 friends here, that are my work colleagues and shit. We're all coming to the show because it's going to be awesome. It's like a, it's a party, essentially. Mm-hmm. So instead of getting, you know, drunk in someone's garage or whatever, you could go to a place with a purpose to see bands and have fun and meet people and stuff. And I think that that uh, and is, it, a, is a great way to look at it. Yeah. Uh, without sounding like assholes, where do you think it's going to go after the pandemic? There's so much to pack into after we're vaccinated and it's safe to be in public again. But I really think that, I really hope that there's going to be a snap. The rubber band's going to fling so far in the other direction that people are going to go to tons of shows. And it's going to be like the uh, the Roaring Twenties post the uh, 1918 uh, so-called Spanish flu again. Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of, you definitely answered it. And you also prefaced it, because I've been asked this question by all kinds of local yokel like news stations and radio when they do the interview with the like music guy that will actually answer questions. And like, (laughs) I always preface it with like, well, I'm not a scientist, so it's not up to me um, when it's like safe. And, but I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, roaring twenties, man, it's going to happen. Like people are going to be, I mean, very pent up and like festivals are going to be a new thing. And there's going to be, there's going to be so much pent up. You only live once attitude yeah. especially with art and culture if we as long as we can we it doesn't get any worse and we can come out of this with like healthy art scenes and cultures and you know 
that's why saving independent small small venues, right? And you know, there's obviously I think there needs to be some support for actual artists um, yeah. who create and fill the space, you know, without digging into like those kind of like logistics. Um, I totally think you'll see a change in like, I mean, how you treat artists, how like how the the fan appreciates artists, right? You know, like how many yeah. how many times you see your you know you see our scene say things like. You know, when we come back, we're all buying tickets. No more guest list, right? Like, which is something I like to deal with on a day-to-day basis. And obviously, like, yeah. that's just a, a thing. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, it's not that much money to you or them comparatively. But, like, that's a good mantra to, like, think about. Like, I'm going to support everybody, yeah. right? Like, totally, I'm, we're going to everything. And, like, maybe we'll be more open to um, to new types of expression and bands, art, you know. I mean, it's all yeah, rock and roll. I fucking hope so. Exactly. And it's really easy for me to talk about this 10 years on from a nice place being 34 years old now, or I guess more than 10 years on. But in 2008, 2009, 2010, it was, that was a financial collapse. And that also created a unique time for artists. And it was one that made us. So the ability, the fact that we couldn't play in bars and standard venues because they were closed, nothing like it is now. So mm-hmm. they, not even close to like it is now, but it was still unable to afford to go to a place uh, where people had to buy drinks and, and, and expensive tickets. So it created the house show scene that really exploded in a lot of the, especially East coast places. And on the West coast, there's a lot of non-traditional venues and there always will be, but that scene made our band that allowed us to be able to play shows that didn't cost money for anyone, but allowed a lot of people to um, get into our music and like our band. And then they rooted for us. So like you're saying, the support that everybody has now, where the idea is fuck the guest list, you know, you can pay to go to the show. People want to root for those that are downtrodden. And it is funny, you know, that 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 the artists uh, are the last. Um, and that kind of makes sense in a way because it's intangible the way that it's set up in our current, uh, you know, like economic reward system. You, you, it's not tangible. You can listen to us, especially now that you can just listen to a song for free and you should be able to listen to a song for free. In my opinion, this is not, hmm. it does not require any energy to get from point A to point B. It's a series of ones and zeros. It's, it's negligible. Um, but yeah, we'll see, we'll see if there's any mirrors that had happened in, in 2008 to 2010 to after this. Yeah. I remember, I remember thinking, once you know a couple of years ago like oh wow like we, that was a you didn't think anything of it because we were just broke like oh wow that yeah. was a recession that was a shitty time for <laughs> like everything like yeah. like uh, my state's largest employer did almost completely go belly up like we almost stopped making cars like oh like <laughs> that does a lot to the tax base and like that means kids even you know people don't give up entertainment as quickly as they give up other things in a yeah. recession but like yeah like yeah, all our shows were ten dollars when everywhere else could afford twenty. You know, um, exactly. And this, you know, so going back, like, yeah, what is the mindset of like people half our age creating art going to be? You know, yeah, exactly. Uh, fucking nuts. So one of my favorite things about you and being uh, your friend is while we're on tour, having a shared interest in history, and especially having a shared interest in the history of where we are. Uh, while we're on tour and taking advantage of those things. There has been more times 
than I can remember where you have woken people up early and dragged them to various historical and beautiful places that we normally would be too cynical, jaded, or hungover to go and experience. So that, where does that come from? Have you always had a huge interest in history or is it like, can you pinpoint the budding of it? Yeah, I mean, um, my fiance, Laura says I'm very like receptive to everything or like I pay attention. I think it's the opposite in like an ADHD ADHD way. But like where I'm paying, like I'm just, I'm seeing everything. So I'm not paying attention to anything. So, you know, Uh, but like when you're, when you're in and also, I didn't do any traveling as a kid, right? Growing up, I lived in a, you know, it's a fairly boring, normal Midwest town. So being sure, I would say fair enough. We were very jaded over, or sorry, very, you know, lucky over here because you'd go on a field trip to New York City on a school bus and you'd get back before school was over. Right. I mean, and that just didn't exist. So like being anywhere is like, you know, uh, there was a time, yeah, when making it to California, like really meant something and like, soaking up people's way of lives and like culture and like um you know like you you, um i just listened to your uh interview with kaylee goldsworthy and like you talk about going to different countries especially south america and australia where um you just hear like the birds sound differently and like the like the trees are still trees but they're like different species and how that like how then seeing that through like oh what does a local think of that that's their day-to-day like that's fascinating right um, and trying to soak up as much of that as possible. Um, cause a lot of these places we won't ever go again, you know, it's true. Especially in the early days when you're like, well, this could all end tomorrow. And like, and then, you know, you go to Europe a couple of times, you're like, okay, maybe, uh, maybe I will, you know, so we can fix it. maybe I will go back to London. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, sorry. I just had a little glitch. I'll have to pull that out in the, in the editing there or just leave it in here awkwardly. But uh, so you have a, a fantastic ability to contextualize to historical things. So you, you, you roll, I think that's the biggest key to learning anything, uh, history or not. I'm going to Google roll contextualize in. really quick, Tom, and just get back. Oh, sure. Get back to you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Maybe I do. Okay. Yeah. Spot on. Well said, Tom. Hell yeah. Thank you. We had a technical issue. I'm going to have to get on the robotic chat for 45 minutes to talk to the company about what happened? Skynet's making its first move. Skynet, can you imagine first, live on a podcast? Skynet's first, just making its first. first they came for the podcasters. <laughs> of course. All right. So we're, what we're diving into is your ability to contextualize historical uh, situations and events to why we're there and what's going on. It's super fascinating. And I was wondering what you find uh, fascinating about it. Like, why do these historical stories play such an important narrative in your your vision of the present? I mean, like, uh, especially going around the U.S., like, because America is such a, it's a concept, you know? Like, yeah. You, I mean, you go to Poland, and you're just like, well, there's always been Polish people here, so that's why it's Poland, <laughs> right? Or you go to Italy, and they're like, we, we've always been, you know, we've been Roman. <laughs> we've been roaming around this peninsula for a long time, and here we, you know. <laughs> but, like, right, but, like, in a, especially America, um, like, why did these people end up here, you know? Like, how did, just, like, and how do you, and like, where do you go from there? You know, what, yeah. what's your future look like? You know, uh, it, these people at one point in time in Ohio, you know, thought that, you know, Ohio was the California of America. All the dreams yeah. and free thinkers went to Ohio. Imagine that today, you know? Um, yeah. And of course, like, it's, it's much more exotic when you're in Europe and you're like, oh, 
you know, why does, you know, why is Ireland two countries right now, you know? Or yeah, just, exactly. Um, I mean, like, what was our first trip to Dublin? We went and it, we were playing a show. Show is sold out in a, some bar. And it also happened to be uh, the, the Super Bowl for their, the Irish sport of hurling, right? Gaelic leagues. And, like, I think you said, like, I spent my entire childhood growing up in America and like I had no I'm paraphrasing it, but you're like, I had no sure. idea. Like eighty thousand people are going to this game and I've never heard of the sport before in my life. Like, yeah, exactly. like how you they know, all you, speak you, English. <laughs> and they all speak English and there's no yeah, <laughs> you're just like why what are the reasons for that, right? Um, yeah. I love so. that. It is a great point to bring up the regional regional intricacies and differences in the United States are so much more bizarre. Uh, so the things in Europe make so much sense where you have someone who lived there or a culture that was molded for a couple thousand years. Uh, whereas yeah. in the United States, there's so much it was done in the last couple hundred years and specifically the last even 60 to 100 years, especially on the West Coast. So you have the tragic violence of the um, destruction and dehumanization of uh, Aboriginal people, Native people that lived here. Um, and you can still see a lot of remnants of that in the... Um, on the West Coast, where you run-ins with people who really look um, of Native American descent, if you're not, you know, are normally the first people you encounter look impoverished and look like you see people working at a Walmart and shit like that. And you're like, fuck, this is a real thing. You know, they drove mm-hmm. all of these different people away and the Europeans did this in a very short period of time. Um, but even beyond that, there's the weird industries that may pop up in an area and draws a certain ethnic group there. So you'll see that the corner stores are Polish or whatever. Like it, there's just so much yeah. intense difference, even from a couple miles away that it, it becomes, uh, just so fascinating. And the more you learn about it, the more you realize that it all kind of connects together. I feel like that's one search in life is to find that unifying, um, those unifying ideas and why, why they are like just putting context onto it. Even right now, I think you're wearing a... Uh, t-shirt from the uh, Museum of the American Revolution. Yeah, there it is yeah. in Philadelphia, which I yeah. is a great museum. I highly recommend anybody wanting to uh, who comes to Philadelphia to go check it out. It's really new. My fiance actually worked on the marketing team when it first oh, yeah. came out, and there was like a, a bunch of cool kind of things that they did there. Yeah, it's a good one. It uh, it highlights the struggle of like what is like how there were so many revolutions going on within one. You know, it wasn't yeah. just what Ben Franklin thought. Like the Native Americans had their own like battles and tribulations and like yeah, women, yeah. women had Killed their the own shit out of each other. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, and arguably like should have stayed, you know, should have kept with Britain, you know, whatever, yeah. but like not, not to digress, but yeah, like, I mean, taking the world and making it, it seems so massive when you grow up in like a tiny town in America and you keeps getting smaller and smaller yeah. and realize like people are just people, man, like, like everywhere forever yeah. and always. <laughs> yeah. Which I think is a, a, a sad but beautiful after it's sad thing where you're like oh wait we're all human this is a great experience that we share and that's the reason why we love and work with each other yeah great uh so now we got to tell me about what's it like being our tour manager you can you know this is (laughs) obviously you can't ask me every day is a blessing (laughs) i wake up every day and i say god is good all the time and all the time god (laughs) is good um uh, honestly, it's great. I have worked for a few, a few other bands. Um, I enjoyed all my time with all of those bands. In my early days, I did merch for some old ska soul bands. Or they were older than me at the time. And I mean, you're talking. I mean, those guys knew each other probably as long as y'all did. But you know, we're talking way more fist fights 
and like you know and just like on unha- people unhappy with uh with each other from the get before the shows even start happening on warp tour you're like we're already being violent with each other so like and you guys having grown up together is the more we tour the more bands you meet realize that that is not the case and how special that is um totally um also being a tour manager so, so uh the the democracy of the menzingers is one that i love to trumpet but also disdain in the way that like sometimes you're like well we couldn't reach a consensus so nothing happened <laughs> I'm, um, I'm with you on that one i think it's one of our strongest and most beautiful assets uh, that we have one of the most beautiful aspects of our band but it is it is a real democracy sometimes you just it, don't move <laughs> it is it is a direct democracy and there yeah there is no constituent it's a constituency of one you know the, uh, the, this the is business. not a republicanism this is, no. uh, this is straight up and um and like i you know like um and everybody everyone else who works for you feels the same way in terms of like <laughs> feeling blessed that like the band like you know there's bands there's groups there's artists where and i i see this from being a promoter and from touring where like yo the lead singer the guy who writes the songs or the guitarist who writes the songs it's all his decision and whatever happens you know you know if they're a compassionate person and they're nice to their rhythm section or the guitarist or their dj cool but if not, then everyone else is just, it's a paycheck and yeah. what, what they say goes. And like that can create, you know, dictatorships can create, can create, you know, a smooth tour for the crew and the tour manager, but also like that could be hell. Um, Enormous you know, I, amount of suffering. <laughs> right. I've had to be like, I've had to be the bad person who's like, in, especially in the van days with other bands that I worked for, I was like, well, look, this is happening because this member wants it we're all in this van together having the same amount of terrible time or not terrible but just like we're all grinding and suffering together for the greater good but yeah. like this person makes our decisions and it's and i'm crew so I, you know I, I already am not um don't really have a vote you know so having to having to keep you know keep the keep the train moving that like that's your job as a tour manager to like keep keep it going forward um like, yeah that no, is no a, matter a what. good point Totally. They keep it going forward no matter what. That's like the fucking job right there. I might use that as the the little poll quote. Yeah. Um, but so f- you've definitely shepherded and herded us in many situations. So there is the, the main thing that you do is make sure that you're the, the point of representation, the tip of the spear, if you will, of when we get to a venue to top down, organize, make sure everything runs. So when we're playing shows with, you know, 2000 people or whatever, it uh, like that humble break. That the uh, uh, the entire thing, there's dozens of people who work for the venue. We have a dozen, yeah. we have two dozen people on the actual tour, and they all need to work together for several hours to make sure everything happens smoothly and safely for thousands of people. Uh, and that's quite a haul. Like, uh, have you noticed how that's changed since we were doing smaller shows? Do you now have to create a top down culture that kind of permeates the entire thing? I've noticed that. We try to keep within our group uh, the same type of mentality that's front facing with the people that we interact with. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's yeah. I mean, you got to be <laughs> like the comparison from the early days was you know you we used to go in begging for things <laughs> right or or yeah. stealing in some circumstances you know many uh, who, circumstances right At, it was a lot of uh, back in the day it was a lot of uh, ask for forgiveness before permission yeah uh, just to keep things keep things going and people fed watered and happy and. And now it's it's about how do we create a bubble 
whether it's backstage, you know, festival transportation, um, uh, you know, the tour bus, the van, you know, the bands in the vans that are opening for you. How do we keep everyone happy and, and not just happy, like, oh, we're having a great time, but like wanting to give their all every night and keep playing. Yeah. yeah and that comes from like, you know, from our sound tech, Dave March, you know, like uh, making friends with the, the cranky old sound guy. Yeah, right? which the old sound guy is fucking cranky. I just want He's to throw old, that out there. Yeah, just like the crankiest. And like sometimes you just want to be like, hey, I bought you a new, a nice hairbrush. Yeah. Because your hair is so old and long and you love you love Black Sabbath way too much. And I'm sorry we don't sound like Black Sabbath today, but it's just going to, you know, and like, but no, but Dave has a special, like, uh, he has a special skill of like, because if you get, if you get the cranky audio and lighting people, um, on your side, then they're because they're the ones who have to mix your opening bands, and then yeah. your opening bands are going to sound better, and they're also going to help you with the changeover. So, wow, cool! This show is running on time, right? Um, so then, the, so no one's going on later, no one's getting cut off, you know. And there's those little things, right? Um, it's you know, it's it's Nick, it's Nick Harris, uh, their guitar tech, you know, helping the opening band get their gear off stage, so that like if a member's having a, you see someone's having a bad day. Right. Or, you know, the, the drummer's struggling with something. Right. Um, or one member is completely clueless and can't can't help themselves. Like you've kept, every, you know, now the like opening band of the direct support, like um, there's always one. Right. There's always, of course, it's always and we've one. all we've had our our goes, each of us in that and on those days of regards. But there's always one that has no, no, it's yeah. kind of just rolling through the world. Yeah. And I've, and I've, I've had I've kind of had this conversation in like every time there's always some kid at Michigan State or someone that's like, how do you get into music? You know, and like. And understanding that it's like a very small world and you will see everyone again. Mm-hmm. Like regard like you can't just like you can cut no one off. Like the amount of times I have worked with the we've worked with the promoter in Phoenix or in uh Austin or Seattle and you know, if that would have went bad, then like we were going to go back there again, maybe at a larger venue, but it's probably going to be the same promoter because it's such a small industry and you know the you know it's, even in the early days like the bar manager is probably also the promoter or whatever and like treating people how you want to be treated and meeting them at least halfway especially when it comes to like money and like um you know, the beer selection or whatever or like times to load in is where you get you'll have a smoother time tour touring you know um, yeah and, oh, yeah. and then even when and even now when we're you know more often than not we're the headliner um but you know we're still the opener or the direct support on bigger support tours so like when we did the vape across america tour with uh the offspring and sublime right we were the arenas. opener <laughs> yeah right i mean those Which was were a all, blast yeah they were all like amphitheaters and we had when we just had to like you know we had to beg to get you know the few things they were able to give us but but also like you know making friends with their crew got us you know it, it got us a better uh, you know a better drum riser uh, you know totally all those absolutely just those types of vibes because like it, you know if you can suss out that everyone that most people like want they want the show to happen yeah. right at, at the end of the day i, I mean you can't also, get to certain points without having being able to work well with others unless you have something extremely unique that everyone wants you know like which i think is why some artists can get away from with being the most outlandish and or biggest assholes on the face of the earth to the people that work with and around them um which we don't do at all but uh 
yeah, not to compare Offspring's crew to flies, but you're going to attract more flies with honey than you do with, you know, something else. So that's, uh, being nice allows you to get the wheels greased for us to be able to do things. And I think that, uh, yeah, it's great, great answer to the question of how do we kind of create a top down situation or vibe that rolls through the show. You know, I think that, 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 that's great. And it's funny, we don't have that many enemies, but we, we have some people that we've not liked because of the way that they treated us. And it is funny in music, uh, how some of the inherent social hierarchies work, and what I mean by that is you have to be careful as well with who you're talking to. There's been so many instances where someone was extremely mean to one of us and then found out, you know, that we were in the Menzingers or that we worked uh, with the Menzingers and then they immediately changed their tone. We've had people come and knock on the door and apologize for things. Oh, uh, yeah. It's pretty, pretty fucking hilarious. And the, the takeaway there is like, why don't you just not be a dick? Uh, then you don't have to worry about that. Safety issues. Yeah, you should be a dick to someone if they're... Right. Um, you should make them fear uh, for their like if, their their job if they're being unsafe because yeah. a lot of what we do is like not if, scripted safety wise. Precisely. I mean, like if like if uh, like if say a day to remember goads the opening band's merch guy who happens to be <laughs> Scott Bell of the Menzingers and says, "Hey, if we cover a Millen Collins song, will you stage dive off a off an arena stage through a, over a barricade? Will you do that?" And then that, that then that guy me says, <laughs> "Hell yeah." Because you know, uh, why? Because you're punk, and then when you when you put all those people in immediate peril, the the tour manager for Data Remember, uh, you know, puts you in a headlock when you get backstage, and uh, screams about you never being on a stage again. Um, uh, you know, that was probably warranted to be put in a headlock. That's by totally Data true. Remember's it was definitely uh, warranted if he didn't know that they had put you up to it and all that. That's hilarious. Uh, you oh, know, God. that's the first time ever you mentioning it right now that I've ever thought of it other than that guy being a huge dickhead. But now right? I'm like, you know what? I totally get why that guy did that. Uh, and, I'm, and I remember like Rise Against His Crew being like, we get it. But like, think about the liability of you to broke somebody's neck, you idiot. Like you, that yeah. was like a 10 foot jump. Why did you do, you know? And you're like, yeah. you know what? You're right. You've met Ian Mackay before and I haven't yet. <laughs> um, I trust I trust your ethics on this. Um, and and then you know what? And then to you know a, to a data remembers uh, uh, to their credit, they they yelled at their their old TM, uh, and he brought you guys a case of beer to apologize. He did. Oh. He knocked on the door. He came in. He put the beer down. He grunted and he and he left. Yeah. Which and now I, I feel even more weird about because I'm like, damn, he was just doing his job, and then they made him grovel or whatever you'd want to call it. And then I'm thinking, did that extra amount of beer that made its way into the van that got snuck into the next venue, did that contribute to a member of the Menzingers being too inebriated and trying to sell their own merch in in a stadium in you know in the next arena? Which is a big no-no in this in the the big world, you know. Like uh, it, it it amounted to that member waltzing into the counting room where there's just piles of money being made by two very big bands and demanding. Yeah, I was in the room, but I was it was me. I was in the room earlier. There's oh, yeah. piles of cash. No, this was uh, yeah, piles this of is, cash in these rooms. This is not a future. Yeah, because I think you were the first. Because I didn't see it firsthand, and uh, that I believe they were selling the other, you know, the headliners, Rise Against, and the Data Remembers merchandise so fast and furious that our T-shirts had been thrown on the ground. <laughs> yeah, there's, that happened a lot. So basically, someone else they'll have in-house people handle the merch and cash mm. uh, to make sure that 
you know, for whatever reason, create jobs. They know the space. They know taxes. what's going on. Taxes. taxes. They make sure that they click accountability for the accounting. Um, but we're a small, you know, at the time we're a very small band, uh, and we needed to sell merch to be able to keep moving. And they would sell our merch for us. But since we wouldn't hardly sell anything, they would just sell the other band's merch, and our shit was just lying, literally just lying on the floor. Uh, it was in South Carolina. Yeah, and the guy who was in charge of it all was an off-duty sheriff. That was his like side gig. Was like running yeah, this, running, running the, the merchandising, the in-house merchandising outfit for the for that like large theater. Yeah, and then we had to, and then we, and that was the old the second time we got yelled at on that tour to like stop ruining everything because yeah. people have to, you know, they're working. They're actually these are working. actual jobs. Being punk yeah. rock is not a job yet for you guys. Stop yeah. ruining everything. Yeah, we would climb up to the third, like, because in the arenas, one of my favorite things we did was throw the paper airplane from the top of the sports arena down to the front. Or the Frisbee. We threw a Frisbee from the top all the way down. And yeah. we would just go to the press boxes and just openly smoke weed in them. That was one part of the royalty of that tour, which was hilarious, is if you had that pass, you really could do whatever you wanted. Because they just, just, all of the people working the show, the hundreds of security were just like, oh my God, there's the... You know, what do they know less than I'm um, like the guitar player for Bruce Springsteen situation who would normally play there? You know, it's so above, it's like, it's a, yeah, it's above your pay grade, right? For those who have been in those situations, like, and yeah, because yeah. Corey, Corey Cerisi was on that tour and he'd get <laughs> weed and then you'd be like, I found a spot. And then you'd just be, it would just be like, you know, the press box. Yeah, be this, the press box of, this, of the Jacksonville sweet, Jaguars. Yeah, right. And then, they, and then, yeah, and you, you're hot boxing this, you know, and they'd be like, what are you doing in here? Like, oh, we're, we matter. And then you'd be yeah. like, oh, you sure? And we'd be like, yep. <laughs> and be like, oh, sorry. sorry <laughs> that shit sir. was so fucking funny. So you said something to me one time while I was on stage packing up cables. And it was about, so I'd mentioned something about social anxiety. And you looked at me and you said something very simple and very akin to like, I don't know. I don't have that. I've never had it. And you were very matter of fact and you fucking walked away. And I was like, damn, that was hard as hell. <laughs> First off, it was hard. It was also in a situation where people, there was something going on where tensions were really high. Right. And you were just like, I don't know. I don't have to deal with that. Boom, walked off. And I wondered, uh, that's such a great part of you. You were always the guy who was willing to do something hilarious to bring the morale of everybody up. And also goes back to the fact that you could just dress up as a serial character that you're in a cartridge family and yeah so i think that makes you an incredibly personable human being a great tour manager to be able to deal with in-house people and this last uh year you spun it into political organization i wouldn't even call it activism necessarily because of all the well, connotations that go along with that yeah. but it's actually active organizing. activism yeah. yeah organizing so that experience watching you be able to carry that out this last year was incredible what did you uh, take away from that? Or why don't you just give us a, a little rundown of what you were doing? Of like the organizing and stuff? Yeah, of uh, 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 organizing uh, voters. And yeah. Um, so um, <laughs> I remember thinking when we're, when we were on tour in January, it's like, oh, no, what if I'm not able to volunteer for the election? <laughs> and like, what if I'm not able to like do like do my part? You know, but the first the first like election I ever volunteered for, I was a precinct captain for John Kerry in 2004. I was 18. Um, but this time... Um, with the pandemic provided me plenty of time um and especially in post trump you know i started uh, uh, an indivisible chapter um which was you know bringing people together who had, had no interest in politics before and teaching them like how you know the, the the rules for radicals you know um the difference between activism and organizing right activism is just shouting um 
to a certain degree, which is necessary, but organizing is how do we bring this, how do we collectively think about this subject, this object, and then put it, how do we move, make the machine move for us to get this accomplished, right? Exactly. Not Especially just, in a year where everyone was forced to be on social media and kind of a lot of yelling at each other, yelling the same things and it right. kind of like, not to be so cynical about it, but I mean, to be frank, I am very cynical about it. The, the slacktivism armchair kind of shit where screaming into the void of the people who are screaming the same thing doesn't move. Yeah. And you actually, you know, learned how and manifested that movement. Yeah. I mean, at one yeah. So I like, I, um, we had that group and that, um, obviously that was, that was, volunteer but you know we petitioned and um you know organized phone banking and all the simple like this is to for the Koch brothers yes yes this is this is this is for um the shadowy uh super PACs (laughs) which led me to a real job with uh, a political action committee called progressive turnout project which was solely focused on my passion area my area that I'm very passionate about which is like deep canvassing which like Bernie, I'm paraphrasing, but like Bernie Sanders kind of invented the like, go back to this door, go to where the people are, right? Um, Stop trying to raise a million dollars on Twitter for, you know. That you spend on a psychologist to change your ads, you know. Exactly, right, to run a bunch of ads in Maine to unseat Susan Collins, who's going to win anyway because you carpet bagged her state with ads. Great job, you know. Um, Go to where, and if that that requires, um, I remember telling my my directors, because like, I mean, I'm, I'm 34. A lot of these, a lot of the kids in our group, I found out were like very early 20 somethings, you know, and yeah. um, I just found politics was like uh, telling them like, you know, I'm from here. There's not a, there's not a neighborhood in this city that you could put me in that I wouldn't feel comfortable speaking to any race, creed, religion, whatever person, sure. like no matter like it, like put me in a how like the houses where there's shit everywhere in the lawn and there's two cars that don't work and like I will knock on that door and and i can speak like through them to them like and and also most importantly just listen to people yeah you know just listen um the amount of times people say like oh no one ever come down here before you know um you know yeah put you know so much of organizing is, is going to the you know canvassing those apartment complexes where every 30 seconds uh a smoke detector beeps because people can't afford the nine volt to change it Right. Yeah. And so you have this, this like, and you're like, that's the, you know, that's the kind of social justice that um, I'm really passionate about and led me to work for a progressive turnout project in the election. Um, and it was super fulfilling. And, um, you know, we, we had, we did great. We had some great numbers in terms of like door knock numbers and phone banking. You know, the pandemic kind of threw out the, threw out the playbook. Yeah. Yeah, so you guys put up some incredible numbers with the phone banking and going door to door, and you did go to apartment complexes where you saw, you know, the smoke detectors going off because people couldn't afford to do it. And you said this is an extremely, uh, you know, fulfilling job. Uh, back to that contextualization that you've all had with kind of seeing the regional differences in the United States and where things came from Europe. I can't think of a more clear education on the state of people and their thoughts and feelings and conditions than actually going and talking to them. So I think that you can get the University of Pennsylvania here in Philadelphia to do as many surveys as as you can imagine with parameters to try to gauge the 
for lack of a better word, poll them on something or try to gauge the way that people behave certain ways, but you physically going and actually meeting and seeing people and then subconsciously internalizing their body language and, and all of those kinds of things has to be such an enormous wealth of knowledge. Like you have to have an understanding of people and the voter that is beyond uh, what you could possibly have virtually, for lack of a better word. And I feel like that uh, that reversion or that, that stepping, not even reversion, that stepping back to that type of um, canvassing and political outreach has got to be huge now. And you must know so much about that. So what, how do you take, what do you do with this knowledge? When those, like, and those people don't take polls, right? Go to where the people are and like go to winnable, gettable voters. Like the whole process was people who voted Democrat or left at some point maybe skipped an election, maybe they're too young, right, uh, to have voted yes. enough, and then petitioned to them, stop screaming at, you know, the other side of the aisle that's actually, you know, that you're not, you're probably not going to convince them anyway. Like, we don't want to talk to them. We want to talk to the massive middle who is apathetic, thinks it doesn't matter, and, and, and thinks their opinion doesn't matter because no one's either asked them, or if they have been asked, they haven't bothered to think about it, you know, and yeah. approach people with that, like, power in hand, like the amount of times on the phone, I would just be like, like, that's your power to change that. Like, that's what this voting is like. Like voting is part of that, you know, and like and you break it down like past like the fucking president, man, like, you know, all the way down to the local issues, you know, yeah. and every state in like that's how you get people to like about face away from apathy, which is the worst part. Right. Because that's how they win when we when we constantly shout like they're all the same. Yeah. Nothing can change, right? Because, um, and that's the. I, I also feel that's the constant progressive. The problem with progressive politics is once you have success and you move the chains and you move, you move you, now you've moved the goalposts further as well. So, like yesterday, tomorrow's hope and change is now today's. Well, that's just the way it is, right? We've always yeah. had this, you know. But you're like, oh wait a minute, like, <laughs> and then you quickly remember, like, oh, like you watch an office, a season, uh, episode you know, from the office in the first two seasons, then they make a joke about gays not being able to legally marry. And you're like, oh yeah, that was like a fact of our lives that like they yeah, couldn't. That was a fact right? of our lives with some of our currently celebrated politicians stood on the wrong side of only like five or six years ago. It's insane how quickly it has changed and how powerful we actually and you have can. become. Yeah. If, yeah. If you actually push them to like, yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, like Biden talks about like, you know, um, the, the the green new deal and like sunrise movement stuff which one of the co-founders founders is from lansing um and you're like he's like it's on you guys to like push me so like yeah get into that good trouble and like actually take that to the people and like show me these polls that like we can do this and like and push me right so like that's yeah. and and realizing that like they're just a tool right this is like most of these politicians are not like like bad or good like guardians or angels of like i think that's a huge point there's two points that you made up i want to save that one the uh, uh i'm just gonna make a little note here the politician as a tool and jump back to the idea of empowering the people that you spoke with and listened to so it seems like a lot of the uh obnoxious and horrible screaming into the void that then breeds apathy is people trying to get power i think even a facet of using very stringent political rules to try and destroy people's careers is like the furthest manifestation of that mm -hmm. need for power, like cancel culture shit. Um, and what, you know, actually bringing the power to people, what is that like? Like that's actually what you're doing. And that is actually the end goal. It isn't necessarily to just get people to vote for your candidate. You're going out there and showing people that they can vote 
and when they do vote that it is actual movement and not just like an abstract notion in their brain from a screen and especially if they like have like an issue they care about too right like seeing seeing movement on that you know like we have a work group that's like dedicated to changing um changing laws on how you when you arrest like a 17 year old trying them as adults right and changing that law right and they've been like pounding the pavement there and when when they started so many people were like i could never call my representative like what do you mean and now like they know the people who work in their office by name yeah and they're just like huge you and like how many and how and and pandemic wise like i've i you know you know i've been on unemployment so walking through people that process um and explaining to them like and you know you see people post on facebook and i'm like call your state rep now like it's a state run system and like make they work for you make them give you all the information that you like clearly you filled out something wrong you know it, it's an archaic shitty system and like make those people do like not do it for you but like make them give you the tools or like the information to do it properly so that like you get so you get the things you're entitled to right your entitlements right so you get yeah. your unemployment that you and your employer paid into um, it's as simple as that you know just been like these these are not stratified, untouchable people and organizations. Like they're exactly Which is what we've led. We're led to think, you know, maybe we're not even led to think that maybe the system just became that way. And that's what we think from that, that, that generated apathy, which if you look at it, a lot of the GOP um, campaigns where they have spent enormous amounts of money is just straight up disenfranchisement um, compared to a, that's not a strategy that I've seen on a nationwide scale from, you know, the Democrats or any other any other party would they're straight up just trying to stop people from voting <laughs> that's like that's the idea is we don't necessarily need to convince you to vote for a candidate we just need you to not vote so that you don't vote for a candidate that you right. would typically vote for so back to the uh, politician as a tool we spend so much in the United States and maybe it's because of the way that we've told stories since the beginning of stories uh, since we've been standing around campfires but a lot of our political theater is based around the personality personality and behavior of the politician themselves, which obviously is a huge factor, but look at any camp, let's say we'll break it down and use campaign ad as, as an example. You look at some of the campaign ads that were being run in Georgia in the runoff election, or the last time I watched TV at my brother's house, I was visiting and we were watching some local, local TV and the ads were insane and they appealed to emotional, deep emotional biases. They appealed to ideas of like safety and none of them talked about anything actual so as as politician as a tool how can we get people to realize that that's what they are they kind of in theory have to vote the way that you want them to vote <laughs> yeah i mean in in like especially when you get down to the like the week before the election the two weeks before the election like it's you you stop having those conversations with with again like winnable and gettable voters yeah. And so then it does become like there's all those undecided people who are really we like progressive turnout project um, that like tries to reach before, you know, so they can like so they can so you can withstand that onslaught of like be afraid of your dark neighbor. Right. Be afraid yeah. of the, you know, the, the the your neighbors who just moved in who speak Spanish, you know, yeah. like or, it's simple as that. Right. Or like totally. Or your young neighbor, like even be uh, any of that, any, anyone who's going to make you unsafe in some way. Or, right. Or take yeah. your job or like make it yeah. so your kids, you know, um, if you, you've got to build people up with like 
the positive narratives of like change and like, or that they deserve a $15 wage and they deserve healthcare. And like, you know, um, totally, you know, I mean, I remember speaking to this one woman who was like, like getting her to register to vote was a struggle. And I was like, well, you go here. And she, uh, she's like the courthouse. She goes like, Oh yeah, I've been there. Like I'm in a domestic dispute with my ex and like, Oh, I know exactly. that. And like, <laughs> so like, ex- walking her through that process and then empowering her that like oh yeah like no like you deserve healthcare. your kid deserves this healthcare. like <laughs> it's not like they don't best, you know your private employer doesn't bestow it upon you you don't you know you you don't earn it by being a good sit you know you just deserve it by a right and like totally this, this is who you vote for right and if you want if you want that you know and they and also they don't want you to have that you know totally and i gotta say that before this last year um maybe the year before that or whatever at this point in my life i thought of that kind of as almost a a custodianship mindset the idea was like you have to go to people who aren't who don't have the uh the money the uh you know whatever background institutional racism was not a problem for us we were able to understand these concepts so you don't want to turn it into a custodian a custodianship of like patronizing people and being like like it, it, I think there's a fine line is what I'm trying to say. So that you would be like, yeah, you deserve this. You need this as to being like, well, I know better for you. And I think that that's a, a, a tough one to dance sometimes. And it's also one that I, I find to be extremely like frustrating about the Democrats. But I, yeah. Oh yeah. Totally. And there's, especially in like coming and being in massive metropolis and like big machines that can like, where like your city has larger budgets than some states even, you know, yeah, and not, not like a bunch of countries in the fucking right. EU, you know? Like. Yeah. And like, so that those types of machines and like, um, I see those battles as like, you know, what I, I tell Dave, I was like, I'm just trying to get America to like England level shitty, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> until we get like, until everyone can just have health insurance and it's not a game of like yeah. chasing all, you know, like, then we then like you solve that and like then you can start to like i don't know education around like you know universal income and and all these types of like totally uh notions that seem so far-fetched but if we can just get people to stop worrying about like dying exactly (laughs) right daily eating for a lot of people or where you're gonna live it's fucking insane um so that very satisfying uh, political talk with you, Scott. Thank you. I missed us. I feel like we can breach on the point of me and you talking on the phone again. Uh, yes, yes. The political shit. Uh, so I wanted to ask you this one now, maybe towards we get towards the end here. At this age, and maybe you don't feel the same way as me, now that I'm 34 years old, I've been doing this music thing for a very long time. Uh, I've gotten very good at it. You've gotten very good at what you do. At what point does it become a situation where we do not become custodians or or patronize people, but become mentors or kind of teach people what's going on. Do do you have a plan for like your next step of employing people or how you're going to work with kids? Or like you mentioned, you were the uh, de facto kind of um, shepherd of the, the kids who were doing the job that were much younger than you had just discovered politics. Like where do you see that becoming a facet of your life? Yeah. Um, I mean, just in terms of like music and stuff too, like trying to create, I mean, just keeping, keeping that dive bar, those, in those venues, like open to new artists and new, and new promoters and new kids that like, and if, and if that's, and not just rock music, right. Not just booking the shit I like, you know, and, but like 
if kids, if there's just more hip hop artists and there's more EDM artists right now than there are kids that picked up a guitar, like so be it. Yeah, that's like life. like facilitate them understanding how to promote a show and how to make people show up and how to like be on time and pack their gear down properly. You know, the amount of times, you know, <laughs> the simple things of like jumping on stage when you see that's that kid drummer undoing his symbols on stage and being like, and just picking up the whole symbol and being like, no, 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 no. We pack that up off stage. There's no time for this. You have 10 minutes to go up the stage. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And you're like, yeah, dude, like think about it this way. And like, Oh, I've, I'm, I'm 19. I've never thought about other people in that way. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. inconvenience I myself. I have the frontal cortex to uh, Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, keeping that sustainable um, because I've, you know, we've, we've been to those towns, right? And where you're like, oh, scene used to be good for this type of music and now it's gone because yeah. people didn't invest time or effort into like keeping it around and keeping the venues going and stuff. I mean. Yeah. Fucking hey. That's like, and then, the, I mean, and then to move on, like, politically, too, like, pull, just pulling, I mean, pulling every lever you can, you know? If it's talking to friends and family, then that's your that's your deal. If it's, like, writing a thousand letters, right? Like, if it's phone banking and door knocking, like, as much time as you can give is going to have to be enough. I mean, especially from the last four years, you know? Yeah. Um that was the like five alarm fire where you're like, we won't have, like, if you think if we lose this time, if Donald Trump wins again, if you think there will be a like transparent democracy to like, w- to try to win again with that, that Chances is false. Aren't good. That is, yeah. that will not happen. Like, like if, to like, to get to where we, to get to where I want Bernie Sanders to be president or like, you know, um, you know, Fetterman or Sherrod Brown or whatever, like working class, like, pro labor candidate into the white house or whatever like yeah. that's not even going to be an option right you can't like unless yeah I'm, that won't be they'll, they'll have to be disguised as something else there right it's yeah, got so, it, it's got to move in, in some in sometimes incrementally you know exactly because the other Which, option is bloody revolution and like if we don't want that <laughs> and you like yeah and as much as twitter we would like you to think people. otherwise like you yeah. don't want food insecurity for your family. No, the, I'm so glad that you brought up food insecurity because it seems to be of all the things that, you know, we have our, our, our separate history memes chat, which I love, which sometimes yes. we dive into the into the real <laughs> shit. But one of the things that seems to be, and I could be corrected by an actual historian, seems to be the uh, the case of the violence when it's in the streets. We had looting and burning in June. We had people storm the Capitol. But when things become very bad is when you have food insecurity. And I think the last thing that we want is the type of violence that will bring about that economic disruption to where a truck full of corn doesn't make it from Kansas. The to guy, yeah. He doesn't want to, it's not worth the wage to drive yeah. it or it's not worth his life to, to, to make the, the system that puts it, the food in your, in your grocery store. Right. Totally. And, and the pandemic thing I, uh, almost did that. Right. Exactly. The pandemic was the getting pandemic that almost there. They talked about it. I mean, there was a run. Fuck. Um, so what I really hope people take away from this is the one thing that I've learned over and over again with historical journeys with you on tour and with everybody is that people can make a huge difference. I went in my thinking swinging back and forth between, well, no, it's systems. And there's always a nuanced reason for these historical events that we learn about from whether it's Rosa Parks, you know, who had a predecessor that was – 
you you find out she's a in like an engineered kind of way to do it, which is you know amazing. It doesn't take away from her heroism anyway. But I'm saying is there's more nuance there, as there are a lot of situations where there's just one person. And now I think that no, there really is. Uh, there is your Rosa Parks. There really are one people that one person that can make enormous differences, and you can also make subtle differences like you have immensely. And I hope that people are able to take that away and do their own scene, book their own EDM shows if that's what they want, book their own open mic and nights. Open mic and nights. Wow, that's a new one. Open mic. I buy it. I mean, yeah, yeah like I'd putting <laughs> putting yourself in a position where luck can find you, and that, whether that's like a job, right? Like. damn that's good put yourself like increase your 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 ability to attract luck (laughs) and like i mean you know in not being and not being an asshole so people want to be around you so that they say like oh like let's take him in the van right we'll share our taco bell money with him and he can drive the van and do the merch and like if that's how you and if that's how you got to get out of your midwest town then like that's how you did it right and like and then politically like set yourself up set your organization up in a way to like whether that's, whether that's through like League of Women Voters or you know Planned Parenthood Action Fund, like to you know to move the levers when the time is right for you to do that, right? And then yeah. and then to be set up for when real protest happens, right? When like George Floyd is murdered, that, right? That there's already a movement there that can like pick up that steam, and, and that's like you said, Rosa Parks, like the whole civil rights movement was like lots of infrastructure and like yeah. And that's then, why it worked. That's why it worked, or right? It worked yeah. as well as, yeah, yeah. as it did. Um, amazing. So let me ask you, if someone wants to get in touch with you, how can they? Or what do you got? Where, where can they reach you or see what's going on if they're in Michigan or if they have questions for you how to start their own uh, uh, situations? Yeah. Um, so pretty much all my socials are Scotty Bell, S-K-O-T-T-Y, Bell. Um, and that's my email as well. So if anybody had like, questions about how to uh how to how to mess with the system how to how to to completely shift an election yes yes how to how to go um how to propose to your 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 district leaders in new york that they should pay you instead of phone banking to let you message uh all of your juggalo rapper friends on facebook how to (laughs) vote for an entire week and be like, look, I can reach all of these people. <laughs> like they're good, they're good salt of the earth friends of mine. They love smoking weed, and I know that if someone actually bothers to speak to them, they'll vote. Love it, I love G- it so much. Give me the time, right? Yeah, oh, um, yeah, dude. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I'm hoping to have regular guests that come on frequently, and I hope that you would want to be one of those guests. You can come on yeah. and talk about specific things that are happening, especially maybe we'll do a little current events. We had some really fun chats about the game stock debacle and yes. about uh, different foreign policy things that happen. Um, so I'd really appreciate that. Can, and- can I be one of those guys who like calls into like the AM radio or like the, the like morning radio who you like who kind of has a weird voice and then you like hang up on like religiously? Oh like, yeah, for sure. I, I want to be one of, or like uh, or like how. David Letterman treated Regis Philbin like garbage all the time, which is like, <laughs> like you know, I want that. I want the podcast version of that. Yeah, we're gonna do that. We're, we're gonna next time I have somebody on, where we need your opinion. We'll pause the podcast. I'm gonna call you, and then we'll get it on. And I'm just gonna get it, gonna hang it up. Perfect. That'd be great. But yeah, dude, thank you so much for coming. I hope you have a incredible weekend. It is Friday. Uh, until next time. Yeah, so great to hear from you. Take care, buddy. Bye bye. And there you have it. What I hope is the first of many conversations with the legendary Scott Bell. Uh, once again, thank you to Beth Ann Downey for producing this thing. Thanks to Queen Jesus for the intro song. 
Uh, you have an idea? You fancy yourself a, a fancy thinker? Well, email me, tom at futurefriday.net. That is tom at futurefriday.net. Until next time, so long. Hey friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Hi, I'm Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are The Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real, honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts.